Good morning, Redemption. Uh, my name is not Ricardo Stewart. I am one of the pastors, and I do some of the preaching here. <laughs> uh, my name is Josh, and uh, it's hard to know how to follow uh, last week. Man, uh, as Jim mentioned earlier, there's a kind of a big mix of emotions that I'm sure many of us, myself included, have been feeling. Um, the reality is that change equals loss, and loss equals pain. And so there's an appropriate sadness. On the same hand, there's an appropriate excitement, too, for Ricardo and this new season in his life. And as you mentioned, a sense of gratitude as we see God's providential care for him in this process and for us as a church body in this process. And a sense of excitement even for God, what's, what do you have next? You know, like for us as a church community into this coming season. Uh, one of the questions that is natural and come up at this, at this time is, you know, well, who is our next lead pastor going to be? And I'm glad to tell you today that we have an answer. It's Jesus. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. And that can sound a little cutesy and cliche, you know, on, on its own. It can be kind of like that second grader in Sunday school when the teacher's like, okay, kids, like, uh, I'm thinking, tell me about what's furry and likes to eat nuts and lives in a tree. And the second grader's like, sounds like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus, right? <laughs> because the right answer is always Jesus, right? Uh, but even though it can sound a little cutesy at first, it's really true. And actually, we've been reflecting, you know, this last week on how this was a motto for us back in, in our early days. I, I'm newer here, about a year and a half in, but uh, in our early days as a church, the motto that Jesus is our pastor and means that he is our ultimate leader, that uh, for any of us as leaders or in redemption communities or across the board, that ultimately we're seeking to strive to follow after Jesus first and foremost as our ultimate leader. That Jesus has established his church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And so together we seek to place our lives with him at the center and following him together as his people. We, uh, the title for the sermon this morning is Jesus is our pastor and we're going to be in Exodus 34. So if you have your Bible, you want to turn there, that would be great. Uh, if you need a Bible, please raise your hand. The ushers would love to come and bring you one. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to keep it. That is our gift to you. But we are in a series on Exodus, and the reality is the last few weeks have been a little different. Uh, Ricardo's going to come back soon and do one-off. So what that essentially means is we have two weeks to cover 21 chapters. <laughs> and <laughs> I figured rather than speed read through all of them, uh, what we're going to do is uh, something a little different. Usually we work our way sequentially through a book. What we want to do this week and next week is look at a few of the high points from this next section of Exodus and uh, see how they are a window into God's heart for his people, what's happening in Exodus, and I believe even kind of providentially God's heart for us in this moment as a church today. So we're going to start in Exodus 34, where Moses is on Mount Sinai, and then beginning in verse 5. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him, stood with Moses there, and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. All right, well, let's stop there for now. The first thing that we see here is that God has a name, and it's not God, it's Yahweh, right? That God has a name, uh, and this is Yahweh, this is 
the personal name for Israel's God. This is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. Verses 6 to 7 here. It's the most quoted verse where uh, the Bible quoting itself, where uh, authors later in Scripture will regularly refer back to this verse, either by directly quoting it or by alluding to it. So this verse is significant. It's central. This is God's revelation of himself, his self-disclosure of himself to his people, giving us his personal name. Uh, the name Elohim shows up a lot uh, in the Bible as well, and this is the more generic word for like a divine being, like God. So the surrounding nations would believe in the Elohim, like the gods or a god, that kind of thing. Um, and yet for Israel, it was not just generic God, but Yahweh, the personal name here, who God had revealed himself to his people. So it's almost like if you think of, uh, it's almost like God is introducing himself and you're getting like, you've got the business card and it's got God's title on it, like CEO or something, right? And God turns it over now and in ink, he writes his personal name and his cell phone number. And hey, you can get in touch with me whenever you want. God, yes, he has the status of being God and he's inviting Moses and through him his people into personal relationship with him. God invites us to know him. A name is an entry point into getting to know someone. You think of like being at a coffee shop and you kind of see someone across the room and you never met them, uh, but you might just conjecture like, hey, I bet their name is Bill and they probably, um, you know, are an architect and maybe they've got six kids or whatever, right? But it's all just projection and guesswork. But how does it change the name when that person steps up, walks across the room and says, hey, I'm Jim and I actually am, I don't know, a designer or something, you know, and and begins to reveal and disclose who they are. It's the entry point, even though their name, it's an entry point into letting people know who you are. A name is different from a title. Right? Like a title speaks to what you do. So your title might be that you're a doctor or a professor or an architect or whatever, a PhD, that thing might be. And it speaks more to a status that you have and a thing that you do. But there's a distinction between a title and a name. There's a distinction between what you do and who you are. And here God is letting us as his people in on who he is, on Yahweh. He's inviting us into personal relationship. Reality is the nations know God as perhaps they can recognize he's a creator or as Elohim. But God's people, they know him. The world knows God by what he does. But God's people know God by who he is. God doesn't just want you to know about him. He wants you to know him. And there's a difference between knowing about somebody and knowing somebody. Right? Like if you were to come up to me and go, hey, uh, I started dating a new person. I'm really just, oh, man, I'm so excited about this. I'm like, oh, cool, tell me about them, you know. And, and we were like, oh, well, uh, you know, she gets up every morning about 7 a.m. and uh, goes to cartel and does her Bible, you know, reads her Bible study, whatever. She loves Jesus. She, then she hops on her bike and she heads to, she works at State Farm downtown. And so she spends, you know, 9 to 5, she's kind of working there. And then after that, on her way home, she stops by Sprouts and she'll get some groceries or some of the things she likes to eat and all that, you know. And I'll be like, oh, that's really interesting. Well, what's your name? And like, I don't know. Like, dude, you're not dating her, you're stalking her, right? <laughs> you're stalking her. The reality is some of y'all are stalking God, right? <laughs> like some of us, like God did not rescue you from your addiction just so that you could know a bunch of fun facts about him. Like God did not conquer your self-righteousness so that you could become Bible trivia answer person, right? 
Like, God didn't pull us out of Egypt just so that we could memorize a bunch of fun facts. God pulled us out of Egypt to draw us to himself and to know us, that we would actually know him, walk with him, talk with him, be with him, be in life with him. God has brought us out to give us his name. God has a name, and he's given it to us as his people. God's name is tied to his character. When he reveals his name here, uh, Yahweh, Yahweh, and some of your Bibles, if I say the Lord, the Lord, right? And that's um, when you see the Lord, the word Lord in all caps in your Bible, uh, that's a way of referring back to, in Hebrew, the word Yahweh, which comes from the English original of Yahweh. And so the Lord, the Lord, and God ties his name, Yahweh, to his character, that he is uh, merciful and gracious. Love how God front loads mercy here. And that word mercy, uh, it speaks to usually more of a feeling that you have towards someone. And that word graciousness, it refers more, in the original, it refers more to an action that you take. And so the sense here is that God, in both his posture towards us and his actions for us, is merciful and is gracious. He is for his people. It says he is slow to anger, that God is patient with us. And I think that's helpful. As we look at imaging God well as, as, as his people, um, some of y'all need to become a little more slow to anger, right? Like, like any parents in the house where, oh man, my, you know, our, our kids can quickly get on our nerves and it's going, God doesn't like lose his temper. He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't lose himself and become someone different. Like God is patient and long suffering. And yet some of us too need to become slow to anger, right? That on the other side of this, uh, the reality is that though God is appropriately angry when in kind of unrepentant rebellion and over time, because God loves the world, like he gets angry at the stuff that's tearing it apart. Like the opposite, as one person well said, uh, the opposite of love is not anger, it's apathy. Right? The opposite of love is not anger. It's when you love someone and you care about a, a people and a place, like then you rightly get upset when it's being mistreated and destroyed. Right? Uh, God's love is appropriately angry. And he says he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that word uh, love and faithfulness has said, it's a, one of the most significant words for God's character in the Bible. It's steadfast love. It's a language of commitment, right? It's God, it, it, when we think of, you know, I, I love you or, you know, abounding in love. Well, first, I love this image. It's like abounding. It's like this image of almost like the spring, that's tapped down into the, the heart of God's character is just springing, abounding, bursting forth with love and with faithfulness. And yet, when we hear that word love, it, it doesn't mean so much like just, hey, I feel really great about you. You make me feel fluffy, feel inside, or whatever. Not, none of those are bad. But it's God going, I am with you. I'm committed to you. I'm going to be with you through thick and thin, uh, come what may. It's an expression of God's commitment there. And it's interesting, Tim Keller uh, makes the observation how, you know, when uh, wedding vows today, sometimes when we write our own, that historically a lot of the language of wedding vows was, um, I will love you. Like, I will be committed to you. I will be faithful to you. I promise I will be with you and for you. And how today often the language has shifted uh, to being more, I will always be in love with you, right? And the reality is that probably just ain't true, right? Like, there are going to be seasons. Like, the feelings that you made when you, the feelings you had when you made the commitment 
are often not going to be the feelings you have when you need to keep the commitment, right? <laughs> there are going to be seasons and ebb and flow. And part of the significance of commitment, it's God going, I am with you. I am for you as my people. And that we, as his people, become marked by that same kind of commitment towards those in our lives. And finally, God says that he forgives the uh, iniquity, uh, and yet he will visit, uh, you know, the consequences on um, his justice on the third and the fourth generation. And the picture here is that, yes, God is full of and abounding in forgiveness for his people. And yet there's also, so God is extremely patient and forgiving, but there's also this reality of like, but don't mess, right? Like God will not be mocked. And so there's a proper reverence for the holiness of God um, of going on the same hand, if we persist in kind of unrepentant and obstinate rebellion, there's consequences that can ripple down through the generations. It's big, right? So in all of this, um, we actually interviewed for our podcast. If you want to dive a little deeper, it's going up next, next week, next Sunday. But I uh, interviewed a buddy of mine, John Mark Comer, has written this book called God Has a Name. And we dove a little deeper. And so when that comes out next week, I recommend there's been some great interviews on our podcast that can give you some resources to dive a little deeper on some of the topics from some of these passages. But the big picture here, we find that God has a name, and it's tied to his character. And that God is revealing himself, he's disclosing himself to his people, that we might know him and walk with him and be shaped by him. So the question is not just, do you believe in God, but which God do you believe in? Like, often we ask, like, hey, do you believe in God? What we tend to mean is, like, do you believe that God exists? And uh, while that's true and important question, the deeper question the Bible's really pressing out is, which gods do you believe in? Because in the ancient world, everybody believed in God or the gods or divine beings, that kind of thing, right? Um, I'm struck by G.K. Chesterton, uh, an author from about 100 years ago, in his book, Father Brown and the Sign of the Broken Sword. He has this character uh, that he describes as a man who read his Bible. And yet, he goes on, in each of the hot and secret countries to which that man went, he kept a harem, he tortured witnesses, he amassed shameful gold. But certainly he would have said with steady eyes that he did it for the glory of the Lord. My theology is sufficiently expressed by asking, which Lord? Which Lord? It's not enough that we just say, I believe that God exists. The question is, which God? God has given us his name, and he's tied it to his character. It's a revelation that this is the God that we are called to entrust our lives to, to walk with, and to be formed and shaped by. God's name is significant. Have you ever noticed how much time parents will spend uh, deliberating and ruminating and thinking about what should we name our children? And sometimes we'll come up with crazy names in our culture, celebrities in particular, right? So we might get like Apple or Moon Unit or Seven, like George Costanza. I'm sorry if that's your name. I, my pastor was mocking me today. I think. No, no those are awesome names. They're really great. But <laughs> the reason we spend so much time reflecting on a name is because names are significant. We see this in the Bible that uh, the name is often tied to one's identity. And so Abram's name is changed to Abraham because he will become the father of a great nation. And uh, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. When he goes from being one who was like a deceiver, Jacob means, to Israel, he who wrestled with God. And similarly, God's name, Yahweh, is tied to his identity, who he is. And what does Yahweh mean? It means I am. It's the language of the great I am. 
let me explain. This might, a uh, quick little lesson, it might get a little technical, but if you can just kind of hold with me for a moment here. Think back in Exodus 3, Moses at the burning bush, and he asked God, who should I say has sent me? Who should I tell the people when I go from here? Who should I say has sent me? And God says, tell them, A-Y-A has sent me. I am, right? A-Y-A, I am. And A-Y-A is like the first person. In Hebrew, it's like the first person of God saying, um, A-Y-A, I am. But it'd be weird if Moses goes and says, I am, because everyone's thinking him. Hebrew, the third person of that same word is Yahweh, right? So God says in the first person, I am A-Y-A. Moses and the people of God say he is Yahweh, right? Same word. So it's tied to this language of God's revelation is the great I am. And this language speaks to existence. God doesn't just have existence. He is existence itself. He is the source and the ground of all existence, the one from whom everything that is has come. In the ancient world, the gods were often tied to smaller specific things. You had maybe the god of the crops or the god of of sex or of money or of rain or of these different little things. And God's like, you all are like gods of those little things. I'm the god of existence. Boom, right? Like bigger than it all. He is the god upon whom everything that is hangs upon. He is the great I am, the one who was and who is and will be. Where it can also be translated I am or I will be, or the present or future. And in context, he's telling Moses, like, I will be with you and with my people through everything that's about to come against you. God's name speaks to his existence and his presence with us and for us, his people. This also means that God is constant in the midst of change. His name speaks to his constancy, his reliability, his faithfulness. This means that you can bank on God. You can count on him. Your job may be in transition, but God is constant. Your marriage may be on the rocks, but God is secure. Our lead pastor may be in a season of transition, but as a church, God is constant. He is faithful. He is reliable. He is at the center. We can look to him as our center, as our bedrock through any season of transition that we may be facing personally or together. Our confidence is in a God who doesn't change. It doesn't mean like God's like a static figure in a wax museum who, oh, I'm stuck, right? Like, no. This means that God has given us his name, his character, his identity as constant, as faithful, as reliable, as secure. We can bank our lives on. Okay, let's move to Exodus 25. When God gives Moses his name, in the bigger picture here, the surrounding context is um, the instructions for the tabernacle. And that starts, and these are like over a dozen chapters. So this starts back in Exodus 25 and then goes on past the scene we just looked at. So let's start in Exodus 25, verse 1. It says, the Lord, or Yahweh, said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you receive from me, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. 
exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. So you shall make it. Well, here we find that God, not only does God have a name, but we have his presence. Like God's desire is and always has been to dwell together with his people. Now, this sanctuary, this tabernacle, the tabernacle was the hot spot of God's presence. This is where God, where heaven and earth were reconciled, where God dwelled most intimately at the center of the life of his people. And we're given here 13 chapters of details after this about instructions for the tabernacle, what it's supposed to look like, all the fine-tuned details, the priests and how they'll take care of it and everything else. And at first glance, that can seem like, God, a little bit, maybe a little micromanager detail, you know, a little bit high maintenance, right? But the reality is, it can be kind of like, all right, God, just don't tell me, just tell me the time. Don't tell me how to build a watch, right? But the reality is, every detail is highly symbolic and of significance. It's powerful. And it makes me think of, uh, you know, Ikea, uh, their famous motto, that home is the most important place of the wor- in the world. And they're onto something. There's something powerful about your home. And this is God's home with his people. And she goes into detail about the intricacy of what all the pieces will be and what they mean and what they represent and how they will speak to his life with us. In context here, God has just essentially married his people. He's just entered into covenant with them at Sinai. And, uh, and now it's like just after they've entered the covenant and been united with his people, then he goes with Moses like, all right, now I'm going to give you the plans for building my home so I can move in and dwell at the center The tabernacle is also like a mini Eden. There are a lot of the details that speak back to like the Garden of Eden and that sort of imagery. And that's significant. The idea is that it's like this place where now where heaven and earth are reconciled, where God's presence is there, and it leads to this garden imagery, this life with his people, where God is restoring creation. His heart, when his presence comes, is to restore this broken world. This tabernacle becomes almost like a a mini Eden, a a kind of portable garden in the wilderness that will go with his people on their way to the promised land. I want to take a look at some of the details because every detail is symbolic and highly significant. If you were to come over to my house, you would see a lot of, you know, details and things. Um, You get to know pretty quickly a lot about me and my family, right? You probably see pictures of our kids and my wife Holly and our kids on the wall. Um, you would see uh, the design, you know, might speak to sort of our aesthetic, or better yet, my wife's aesthetic. You wouldn't want to see my aesthetic. Mine's, you know, but Holly does a great job making the place feel like home. Uh, you would see the food that's in the cupboards and how it speaks to, like, what we like to eat. Uh, you'd probably step on some Legos, you know, and speak to the little ragamuffins who terrorize our house constantly. But, <laughs> but similarly, you can learn a lot about someone from what's inside their home. And you can learn a lot about God by what he puts inside of us. So let's wa- walk through a few of these major symbols. First, we have the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. And this was at the center. When you walked all the way to the heart of the sanctuary in the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant. And inside of this Ark were the two tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. And there was an atonement cover over the top. And the cherubim, or the angels, uh, was on each side. And this was also known as the footstool, God's footstool. The idea is that God is the king whose throne is in heaven, like you think massive cosmic bigness of God sitting on his heavenly throne with his feet touching down here upon the footstool. 
earth. This is the entry point where the sense of God's kingdom reign is confirmed here into all the world. And while the law and the covenant is in there, it's also it's, it has the atonement covered. The word atonement actually means to cover. And there's a sense of like both God's justice with the covenant and the law and what it represents, but also the atonement that's going to be made that covers his people when we fall short. The, the ark is a place where both the justice and the mercy of God meet. It's a place where heaven is after the ark, we also see uh, the table. That in the, in the holy space area, there's this table with the bread of the presence. And the table in my home, if you come over, it's a place where strangers and guests have become family and friends. And similarly here, God spreads a table to feast and to eat with his people. It's a picture here. And God spreads a table with food not because he's hungry, but because we are. Because he invites us into his home to dwell with us share life with us. There's also the lampstand, and this lampstand is modeled off of the tree of life in the garden. It's got these six branches and seven lamps with the, 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 the middle as well. So there's seven lamp, uh, lamps on this lampstand. It looks like the tree of life, and it was to be lit, kept lit all the time, like 24-7. It's a sign of the light's uh, uh, and laughter of God's presence welcoming people to the light of his presence and the food that he sets before them to dwell with them. We get to the tabernacle itself, and it's interesting, the, the tabernacle or the structure, like this large tent, courtyard, and, and everything, um, the entrance was facing the east. And the imagery and picture here was kind of like you think back in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve rebelled and were expelled, they left through the east. And them and their children kept moving eastward until eventually they built Babylon. So the picture here is like God's flinging the doors wide open to welcome his children back from Babylon, back from exile, back from the distant places of our destruction and grandeur to welcome us back into his presence. And as you were to enter the tabernacle, uh, there were four layers of material that the tabernacle itself was made out of that were a signature. The outer shell kind of protected it from the elements. But then the next layer uh, was like a ram's skin dyed in red. And that was significant of the blood of atonement it took to kind of be brought back from our death-dealing ways into God's presence. And then after that were uh, the goat skins that spoke to the covering, uh, God covering his people. Almost like in Genesis 3 when God... Um, killed the animal to cover Adam and Eve with clothing or something like that. And then finally, the, the innermost layer was blue, a blue fabric that was like God's heavenly presence. It was a sign of God's heavenly presence. That as we come back from exile and we enter through uh, the blood of the sacrifice and clothed by God to actually enter into the most intimate place and dwell with God's heavenly presence. And in the courtyard was the altar where the sacrifices were the means of us gaining entrance back into the presence of God. So what all of this represented and symbolized at its deepest heart was that God desires to dwell with his people. Even in spite of our sin and our rebellion and our distance, that God has made a way and has moved into the neighborhood to dwell with us. And all this points, where we can see it points to Christ, who ultimately God's dwelling with us forever. 
Exodus 29, verses 41 to 46, it shows a couple of key things that would happen now for God with his people. That God, you know, uh, God eats with his people. And you don't necessarily need to turn there because it's time. But uh, if you want to go there later, we see in Exodus 29, verses 41 to 46, that God eats with his people. He speaks with his people. He meets with his people. And he dwells with them through the tabernacle. So the reality is that God has given us his presence. Uh, my kids like presents, uh, other kind of presents, P.S., right? Christmas is coming up. We just talked about affordable Christmas, you know, and they get so excited. And I love watching them get excited about the presents under the tree and the robo-dog and the linkamoles and the whatever the Tickle Me Elmo new updated version of stuff like that is going to be today, you know. And I enjoy seeing them get excited about the presents, about the gifts from the tree. But what I get more excited about is the presence, right? The presence of being with them and them being whether that's board games or hot cocoa or laughter and fun movies or um, sledding, used to be, but now we're in Arizona, so we don't do that anymore, right? <laughs> they get excited about the presence. I get excited about the presence being with them. And the reality is God delights to give us good gifts. He delights in all those things. But the deeper heart of God is to be present with us and us to be present with him. And God has given us his presence. God has taken up shop, has moved in to dwell with us as his people. That God's goal is not just to draw you out, but it's to draw you in. God's goal was not just to draw his people out of Egypt, but to draw them into life with himself. God's end game is not just to get you out of addiction, it's to get you into wholeness. It's not just to get you, man, out of your self-righteousness and conquer your self-righteousness. It's to get you into the fullness and freedom of his grace. God is not just out to break you out of prison, but to bring you into life with himself. That God's end game, we ultimately discover in the gospel, God's end game is to make a tabernacle out of you. Make a tabernacle out of you and I, a place that he indwells with. That's true both for us personally and corporately, together as a church, that we would be a people and dwelt and formed and shaped by the very presence of God. What's going to impact Tempe, what's going to impact our personal lives, what's going to impact our uh, marriages and our singleness and our families and our community and what's going to impact our world is not our performance, but his presence. It's not our performance, it's his presence. We've talked about this in the past, but, uh, you know, We've been inspired a number of us here by um, words of a friend of ours, Mark Sayers, who has talked about, man, for a while now, it feels like there was a decade or two where many of us as churches, we were focused very much on trying to become relevant, right? Going, man, the end game will be if we can just kind of have the cool music and meet in the cool coffee shops and wear the hip clothing and do the whatever, like, then that's how we're going to impact our culture for Jesus. And you look back downstream and just go, dude, it's bankrupt, right? It's not saying bad to be real. It's just going like, that's not the goal or the end game. And if we make it that, it's not going to get you anywhere. But the end game is not relevance. What we really need is resilience. Right? Roots that go deep into the gospel, deep into the presence of Jesus, that press deep in the life of him. And that is what has transformative power and impact. It's not our performance. It's the presence of God residing amongst his people that has the power to transform and to change. I'm struck by Moses uh, in this, this scene, in this area of Exodus, where he calls out to God, he says, God, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't send us up from here because we don't have a shot. 
I believe that needs to be our posture as, as a church of going, God, if we have uh, whatever the kind of thing, the programs or the things or the whatever kind of things we might bank our hopes on, God, it's nothing if you don't go with us. And the beauty in the gospel is that God does go with us. He has given us his presence. He has promised to go with us. So in this season, we press into that as our center. We continually come back to that, to Jesus and his presence guiding us as a church. And the beauty is God's presence is all you need. Like your retirement account may be empty, your bankruptcy papers filed, like your home in the final stages of foreclosure. Like you're, you may be stabbed in the back and betrayed and abandoned. It feels like everything else is gone. But if you have his presence, you have everything you need. That God's presence plus nothing equals everything. In the gospel, we find that when we have God's presence, there is neither life nor death nor principalities nor powers nor angels nor demons nor anything else in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in the presence of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have Well, in summary this morning, I believe the invitation is to come to Jesus as our pastor. That Jesus is our pastor as a people. That Jesus has given us his name and he has given us his presence. I think a quick moment on each of those. Jesus has given us his name. Uh, the name Jesus, you may go, well, so does that mean like his name was Yahweh in the Old Testament, now Jesus in the New? No, same God, right? The name Jesus actually means Yahweh saves. Jesus or Yeshua comes from Yehoshua, which came from Jehovah, which came from Yahweh, which long, complicated story. We don't need to know all the ins and outs, but what it essentially means, Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. That the one who is, is the one who saves. And while it'd be great to have more time to jump into all this, the, the gospel writers make clear that who Jesus is, this is Yahweh in the flesh. This is the God of Israel embodied, come to save his people. The one who is, is the one who saves. The great I am has come for us in Christ. What a beautiful name it is. Jesus' name is beautiful. It's not just information, it's an invitation into life with the creator of the universe. And we find that Jesus' name his character matches the character that Yahweh gives in Exodus 34. That Jesus is merciful and gracious. Jesus is slow to anger. Jesus is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus forgives sin and iniquity, and yet he is just and he will set things right and he will hold, he's not to be mocked or messed with, right? And so Jesus is this God who has come in the flesh, who has given us his name. Jesus is our pastor. He is at the center of our life as a people. He is our constant. He is our uh, reliable, faithful one who we can bank on and turn to. And Jesus has given us his presence. He has filled us with his spirit. The tabernacle ultimately pointed to Christ, the one who would come and dwell amongst interesting john 1 uh describes the incarnation as jesus comes to earth it says uh that he came he dwelt he tabernacled literally he tabernacled among us 
focused on on this imagery to say Jesus is the fulfillment, ultimately, the ultimate tabernacle of God. That was a foreshadowing of Christ himself who has come to take up shop, take up residence, and dwell with us. And now Jesus fills us with his presence that we become his people. We have his presence in us and through us. We are living stones, Peter tells us, being built up into a temple in which Christ lives by his spirit. We are a people who have his name and have been given his presence. So when we say Jesus is our pastor, this is not just kind of a cutesy saying, it's not just saying he's an inspiring example from 2,000 years ago. It's saying, no, Jesus is exalted in heaven over the earth today. He is our center. He is our leader. He has established his church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And so we look to him, and we give our lives to him, and we entrust ourselves to him. So this morning, we, the invitation is to entrust ourselves to him. We're going to do that uh, in one significant way in baptism uh, here in a moment. Some folks, this is a sign of identifying with Christ's death and resurrection and committing and trusting one's life to Jesus. But it's also an invitation that we are continually brought back to, to put Jesus at the center of our lives and entrust ourselves to him, both personally and collectively as a church. So as we come to the table this morning, to the bread and the wine, to the body broken and the blood shed, we come to Jesus, our leader, our shepherd, our guide, our pastor, who's given us his very name, that we wouldn't just know about him, but we would actually know him, that we could taste and see and experience the goodness of God. And we come to the one who has given us his presence, that we might dwell with him, talk with him, meet with him, eat with him, speak with him, live intimately in union with Christ our Lord. Join me in prayer. Jesus, thank you that you have given us your name and you have given us your presence. Thank you, Yahweh, that you are the God who not only is from eternity, who has all existence is bound up in your very self, God, but you have brought us into existence and you come to save, God. You have come to rescue us. God, thank you that your goal is not just to get us out of Egypt, but to get us into the promised land, into life and union with you. So, God, we entrust ourselves to you this morning. Jesus, we look to you as our leader, as our guide, as our center, as our pastor. We pray that you would shepherd and guide and carry us both personally and collectively in the season ahead. We devote and dedicate ourselves to you, God. We want to bring all that we have to you because you have brought all of who you are to us so we might dwell and walk with you forever. Jesus, it's in your name and for your glory that we